All right. So, as we um, go into this morning's sermon on thirst, First Thessalonians, I keep every time I try to say it, I lisp it for, for Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter four, the second half of chapter four, which is about the resurrection. I want to kind of set up a little scenario for you guys, and you need to use your imagination here because it's hard for us to divorce ourselves from two thousand years of history. All right, but I want you to imagine that you um, are in, I've been saying Thessaloniki, right? But I talked with this acquaintance of mine, Yen, who's in Thessaloniki, and he said it's Thessaloniki, okay? So now I have to capitalize low in all of my sermons because I'm going to forget it. Thessaloniki, okay? And so you're living in that city, and this guy, Paul, he comes in, and he tells you about how there's this, this God-man, Jesus, who lived a perfect life, who even though he was perfect, he died, but his death was strategic to defeat sin, to set the captives free. Then God proved this by raising him from the dead so that he can make a way for people to be resurrected, and then he's coming back to get his people. So this guy, Paul, comes, and he tells you this message, and you believe it. And some of your family believes it, and some of your friends believe it. And you guys have experienced signs and wonders and miracles and changes in your own life. And you know people come up to you and they say, well, you're an idiot for believing that. And you think to yourself, you know what? Jesus is coming back to get me and my friend, my friend Frank here. And then the next day, Frank drops over dead. Okay? And it wouldn't be a far-fetched thing to think, oh, my goodness. Frank died before Jesus came back for these people, right? You see, we know, well, obviously lots of people have passed away believing in Jesus over the last 2,000 years. But if you're the first generation and your friends and your family are believing in Jesus, and then all of a sudden they start dying before Jesus comes back, it wouldn't be a far-fetched concern to think you might be worried that your friend, your family, your loved one they didn't last until Jesus come back. And so what's going to happen? Do you understand? This is the situation in Thessaloniki. Thessaloniki, I can't do it. In Thessalonica, okay? Like an American. So this is the, this is the situation in this city that people are, are confused because Paul was only there four weeks and then he left. So he didn't get a chance to talk about every single doctrine. He just kind of gave the big broad brushstrokes. Brush they knew that Jesus died to save them from their sins. They knew that Jesus was resurrected so they could live forever. They knew that then Jesus sent the Holy Spirit so they could follow him as king and that he was coming back. But they were unaware of what would happen if they died before Jesus came back. And this resulted in a sense of hopelessness for the church. And so in this section of scripture, that's the situation that Paul is addressing. And Paul's solution is he wants to explain with confidence that Jesus died, Jesus was resurrected, Jesus is coming back. And because of that, we can be confident either in death, on his return, or in his life that we will be with the Lord. And as Breton read, that final verse, therefore, encourage one another through life and through death. And so we're going to read these verses kind of one at a time, and we're going to try to explain them, all right? 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. I want to give you guys a little hint here. When I'm reading the scriptures or preparing a sermon, all of those commas in your English, I've mentioned this before, but we're slow learners, all of those commas have an implied question, right? And so it says, but we do not want you to be uninformed. Well, uninformed about what, Paul? About those who are asleep, meaning those who have died. Why not, Paul? That's the implied question. So that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. So Paul is writing to address an issue that was causing despair within this young church, okay? The truth that Paul wants to explain is that there is no cause for despair, there's no reason for worry, and that their despair isn't linked to a real problem, but their despair is linked to what? Them being uninformed, okay? I just want to let you know that this is the case with most of our problems. <laughs> most of our problems are not actually issues of the problem, they're issues of us being uninformed, okay? Think of it this way. If you were experiencing a terrible trial, but you knew what good would come from that trial in 10 years, your issue is not the trial, your issue is that you're uninformed about how the trial will play out. Do you follow me? If you could see the whole tapestry right now, but you can't, then you would have hope. But now, because we don't see the end, we have faith in what the scriptures tells us about the end, so we don't have to behave as people who are uninformed. Okay? So Paul wants them to know that once they have this critical information, they will not grieve and despair like the world. The world grieves and despairs without hope, but he's saying that they will have confidence. And so from this text, I want to point out four biblical truths surrounding biblical hope, okay? And the first one is this. Biblical hope does not ignore the pain of death or grief that lingers. Biblical hope does not ignore pain or grief. For those of you who are a little bit closer to me, um, you know that I don't like what I call Christian platitudes, Christian platitudes are kind of pat answers. They're like meme answers that you can just give someone, and when someone says it to you, you actually want to slap them in the mouth, even if it's true, right? And so when you're struggling with someone and someone goes, you just got to give it to God, and you're like, I'm going to give my fist to your face, all right? <laughs> right? Just trust Jesus. I know I need to trust Jesus in this, okay? I'm aware of that. Those are Christian platitudes. Listen, you're just too blessed to be stressed. Hashtag. Right? These things may be true, that yes, my loved one who died is with Jesus, but that reality, although may give me a sense of comfort, all of these platitudes ignore a very honest reality. And the honest reality is this. Life is pain, princess. Anyone who tells you anything else is just selling something, all right? That's the princess bride, which David has never seen. And it's your birthday. Princess bride, people. Listen, pain, 
Sickness, disease, separation, death were not part of God's original design. But they are definitely a normal part of life now. Because of the rebellion of our great-great-great ancestors, Adam and Eve, when Adam fell, the whole world fell. The scriptures say we fell in Adam's seed, is what the scripture actually says literally. We fell in his seed. But true biblical hope doesn't pretend like life isn't painful, okay? I want you to hear me, all right? This is an important thing. The Christ follower who ignores pain is not mature but ignorant, okay? Maturity doesn't ignore pain. Maturity redeems pain. And so the question is, how do you redeem pain? Two things. You redeem pain by acknowledging it as real because ignorance is not bliss and it will not relate result, blur, result in your maturity. Okay? It will not result in your maturity. So pain and grief reflect the reality of loss in a sinful world. Death is not natural. It is a foreign invader. And the Bible actually says that the presence of death in this world is a result of God's judgment on Adam. So death is now a signpost to point us to a broken reality. The second way you redeem pain is this. You redeem pain by realizing that we do, although pain is real, death is real, we do have a confident hope. This is why Paul explains that we, quote, should not grieve as others who have no hope. We have a hope. Listen, grieving is not the problem. For those of you who have suffered loss, loss of children, loss of loved ones, those of you who have suffered the broken dreams of growing up where you're convinced that by the time you were, you know, 35 you would be X and you're not, all of those broken dreams, broken realities, Feeling pain in them is not the problem. Grieving through them without hope, that is a problem. We yearn for what comes, the future grace that's on the horizon. Are you guys following me? Verse 14. <clears throat> for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. give up. I got this plexiglass. I can only do two, so many things, guys. So Paul doesn't want hit these people to be uninformed. He wants them to be informed. Well, informed about what? Informed specifically, as we see in verse 14, about the resurrection. That's why Paul, that's what Paul wants them to be informed about. I want you to be informed so you have hope about the resurrection. And so the question is, why, Paul? And this leads us to point number two. We, as God's people, we only have hope because of Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. That's it. Now, if you were to go and study Paul's writings or Paul's theology, the way Paul views the scriptures, the way Paul views God, Jesus, the gospel, you would find that all of Paul's theology can be summarized as God's people being in Christ. That's what you see 
the most predominant thing throughout all of Paul's writing is that we are in union with Christ. We are one with Christ. We are his body. We are in him. And if you go back to Paul's conversion in the book of Acts chapter 9, you see the framework for this that Jesus gave Paul. You see, if you're unfamiliar with Paul's conversion, he was a terrorist who was killing Christians. He had papers to go arrest them and slaughter them. And he's walking on the road to Damascus, which is in Syria. And all of a sudden, God blinds him. And God says to him, why? Uh, he, says, he says to him, Paul says, who are you? And he says to Paul, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, was Paul persecuting Jesus? What was Paul doing? He was killing and approving the killing of Christians. Jesus doesn't say, I am Jesus and you're killing my followers. He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. See, Paul was persecuting Christians, but Jesus says, when you persecute my people, you persecute me. Why? Because the church is the body of Christ, and we are union. We are in union, united, unified. We are in Christ, hidden in Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So Paul here, in verse 14, he notes this parallel, and this is his logic. From a foundation of our union with Christ, he says, Jesus died. Christians have died, but Jesus rose again, and God will bring those to life as well. So Paul is essentially pointing out that our union of being in Christ as his body is so powerful that when he died and rose again, we died and rose again. I no longer live. I have been crucified with Christ. In the life I now live, I live by faith, okay? And so you were crucified with Christ. You were buried with Christ. You were resurrected with Christ. And now you see that in part and you know it in part, but when the fullness comes, you will know him fully and be fully known. This is the reality of us being with Christ. And so Paul knows that yes, Thessalonians, I know you have grief. And the ointment that he gives them to ease their pain is to remind them that if Jesus died and rose again, they can be confident that if they die, they will be raised with Christ as well, united with him in an unbreakable bond. Surely your goodness and mercy will follow me all of my days, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You can bring that to the bank. Amen. You can bring that to the bank. That you don't have to worry about, well, what if I mess up tonight, okay? Um, newsflash, you will, okay? You don't have to worry about that because surely his goodness and mercy will chase you all the way home, like we sang. I lost my spot. To put it more simply, and I read this in one of my kids' um, children's books, so I didn't make it up. To put it more simply, Jesus died for your sins so that you could be forgiven. Jesus was raised from the dead so that you could live forever with him. And then Jesus gave you his Holy Spirit so you could follow him as king. Our hope is that we are united in Christ. When Christ died, you died to your sins and to the power of death. And when Christ was raised, the shackles of sin and death 
were broken, and you will be raised too, which is why Paul doesn't call death for believers death. He calls it sleep. He calls it sleep, not soul sleep. He calls it sleep. See, our hope is focused on deaths, on Christ's death and resurrection. And without the resurrection, by the way, for those of you who are here and you're kicking the tires on Christianity, without the resurrection, we have no hope. Okay, and so all of this um, kind of modern perspectives on Christianity, which want to make the resurrection some it's like spiritual and it's not real. It's just metaphorical for the fact that I'm enlightened. Okay, all of that kind of stuff. Um, Realize this Christianity without resurrection is just bad advice because it tells you to like give away your money and not get even right. (laughs) And all of these other things. Christianity without resurrection, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, makes you look like a fool. He says if the resurrection isn't true, we should be counted as the most foolish people on the planet. Resurrection, Christianity without resurrection is just bad advice. But the resurrection is true. And in light of the promised resurrection, we read verses 15 to 18. For this we declare to you, by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Implied question, how do you know, Paul? Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive who are left, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, which means, that's the implied transition, which means we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Okay? This whole section of scripture is about the parousia. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Breton told me I was saying R.C. Sproul wrong. So now I have no confidence. (laughs) The parousia, um, that's that word. We have it translated here as coming. But it can also be translated as appearance or presence. Let me ask you a question. Just think about this logically by the transitive property. If A equals B, B equals C, okay? What makes the coming of the Lord special? Why should we love his appearance? Because of his presence. Coming, appearance, and presence, they're all synonyms. The coming of the Lord is special. Why? Because we want to see his appearance. Why? Because we want to be with him in his presence. And that brings us to the third biblical truth about hope. Biblical hope looks looks forward to the final presence of God. Biblical hope looks forward to the presence of God, which we taste now, but we one day we will fully know it. See, when Jesus returns, then he will be present with us. This is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Jesus was called Emmanuel, which means what? 
God with us. He will dwell with his people. He tabernacled with his people in John chapter 1, but then he will dwell with them forever one day. The prophets say he will be their God. They will be his people. The old will pass away. The new will come. And then the new Jerusalem will descend, and it will be the people of God living in the presence of God. You see, when Jesus comes back, we will see him in all his glory, and then we will join him in all his glory. When Jesus comes back, the king will have finally returned. See, this is what we hope for. He gives us his Holy Spirit that we may follow him as king and eagerly wait for his return. And I truly believe that desire to follow him and the desire to wait for him are evidences of the fact that the spirit of Christ is at, is at work and alive within you. So this word parousia, right? The same word is used in literature outside of the Bible. We call that, um, you know, the context of the Bible, the books that are written, not internally, but externally, this external context. And so if you're doing biblical study, you can look at how other authors, other contemporary authors use a word, right? So this word parousia outside of the Bible is used to describe the arrival of a dignitary, which is just a fancy word for someone who's important, okay? For example... When Caesar would come to a city, his arrival would be described as what? The parousia of Caesar, or in Latin, the advent. That's the translation in Latin of parousia, is the advent. In Corinth, which is another city in Greece, which Paul was around the same time, there they found, archaeologists found advent coins. Not like little chocolates that someone put in your stocking but they found coins commemorating Nero, Emperor Nero, commemorating his visit to Corinth. Now, Emperor Nero's visit to Corinth happened while Paul was alive in this general region. And so Paul is not creating a word here. What Paul is doing is he's using a word that his contemporary audience would be familiar with, and then he's sanctifying it and claiming it for the arrival, the coming the presence of Jesus Christ, who's the real king instead of King Nero. And so essentially the coming of the Lord will be similar to the coming of any other king arriving in this, the city of Thessalonica, but so much greater. And this is all reinforced, by the way, in the sounds that are described here. He says there will be a cry of command, as if a voice has one of those megaphones and says, everyone rally to your king, right? A cry of a command. There's a voice of an archangel proclaiming, his majesty has arrived. And then there's the blast of a trumpet. Hopefully it's, hopefully it's better than that. But this isn't something Paul's making up. I want to point out Psalm 47, verses 5 to 9. God has ascended with a mighty shout. 
The Lord has ascended with trumpets blaring. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises for God is king over all the earth. Praise him with a psalm. He reigns over the nations. He's sitting on his holy throne. And all the rulers of the world have gathered together with the people of God of Abraham. For all the kings of the earth belong to God. He is highly honored everywhere. That is an eschatological, prophetic, future-oriented psalm. And it's describing what Paul's describing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Do you see the parallels? The Jews were waiting for the greater son of David, the greater King David, to finally come. And he came in part, but he's going to come again. And when he comes, there's going to be a shout and a proclamation, and there's going to be a trumpet. And then finally, he will sit on his throne, and all the rulers of the world will gather around, and every tongue will confess, and every knee will bow, Philippians 2, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the appearance of King Jesus. Now, I know some of you want me to talk about the rapture because it says get caught up in the sky. Some of you are like, huh? I'm not going to talk about it. You want to know why? Frankly, I don't think it's the point of the paragraph. The point of the paragraph is clear. There is an obvious, important truth here. Those who are dead or are alive at the coming of Jesus, will both see him. And if you're alive when Jesus comes, you have no advantage over those who died before he came back. None at all. And so don't worry about it. If you die in three years and Jesus comes back in three years and a day, it's all right. You have no advantage. And like I said in our introduction, this may seem obvious to us because we live 2,000 years after this book was written. We take this knowledge for granted that, of course, I don't have to be alive when Jesus comes back. But if you were living in this generation, you have to admit it would be a terrifying concern for your loved ones. And that leads us to our fourth and final point. Good thing because my voice is getting tired. Whether you are alive or whether you are dead, your hope is exactly the same. Now, this is important, guys, and so please listen to this point that I'm going to say. Whether alive or dead, your hope stays the same. I'm going to say something here that is a mature perspective, and I don't mean that as like I'm very mature because I'm not. You know me, okay? But I, this is a mature point. We may be tempted when our loved ones die of cancer to say they have the hope of the resurrection, which is true, right? When our loved ones pass away, our hope for them is the resurrection. Isn't that true? You guys can nod. But for those who are alive with cancer, what is their hope? Is their hope a miracle healing? Not according to Paul. Their hope is the resurrection. Because the resurrection is always the greater promise. Like it says in Hebrews, it's better to die in hope. It's better to die in hope. 
See, our hope does not change whether we're dead or whether we're alive. Either way, our hope is, as John Piper would say, future grace. It is the resurrection. This life, whether you live to be 30, 50, 80, or 100, those of you who are older will attest this life flies by. And you have no idea how quickly it goes. Now, I want to clarify some things that didn't fit in anywhere else. Okay? We often say that people die and go to heaven. That's like what Christians say. You die and go to heaven. What we mean by that is that to die is to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. It's to be dead, but you're present with the Lord. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, um, today you will be with me in paradise. And so we say when you die, you go to heaven. In other words, if you die today, your spirit, if you are in Christ, will go and be with Jesus, but your body will not go to be with Jesus. Your soul's not asleep, okay? To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. I'm saying that because Seventh-day Adventists believe that, and it's a heretical teaching, okay? Your soul's not asleep. To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. At the resurrection, whether you were buried at sea, buried in land, cremated, your body will be reunited with the spirit, which is what Paul's referencing right here. So right now, believers who have died are living in an intermediate state, is what theologians call it. It's not purgatory, right? Purgatory is a false teaching that says you slowly burn off what you were lacking. No, it's not purgatory. Intermediate state does not mean ghosts, okay? You're not like haunting your neighbor, all right? That's not what's going on here. If you die as a believer, you are with Jesus in spirit in what we call heaven, but they, they too are awaiting his coming, awaiting his return, because as we are experiencing part of the resurrection, your loved ones who have passed away before you are experiencing part of the resurrection until the parousia of Christ when all of us will be reunited spirit with resurrected body in the presence of Jesus forever. You following me? For those of you who care, the point is this. We should make a theological distinction between the intermediate state, which we call heaven, and the eternal state, which is the new heavens and the new earth with a resurrected body, where we will go when the resurrection finally happens. And so in verses 16 to 18, Paul very nicely gives us a sequence of events. The Lord himself will descend from heaven. The dead in Christ will rise. We who are alive will be caught up together with him in the clouds. And then we will always be with the Lord. In light of everything I've said, that sounds a lot to me like the resurrection. And in light of these things, we can be confident. That's Paul's final thought. In light of these things, we can be confident in the resurrection and therefore encourage one another. Now listen, perhaps you guys came today and you weren't worried about the same thing as the Thessalonians. Chances are that was not your concern and now you feel like you wasted 35 minutes of your life. And so I'm going to tell you 
if you don't like doing the mental legwork, I'm gonna tell you what you should get out of this. One, it is healthy and normal to grieve and experience pain. True faith doesn't numb you to pain, but shows you where to look for hope in your pain. All right? That's one. Two, we can have hope in this life and the next because of the resurrection. Your life is a waiting room, and it's longer or shorter, depending on who you are, but then comes the eternal dwelling. And those who have trusted in Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection, who have followed him as king, who's received his Holy Spirit as a guarantee of a future inheritance, which is the promised resurrection. And those who want nothing to do with Jesus, God will give them what they desire. Those are the eternal dwellings. Today, we hope in part, but we will experience the fruition of our hope when Jesus returns. And the fruition of our hope is this, his presence fully. Therefore, when your friend is grieving, when you are grieving, when the people in the body of Christ are grieving, we can encourage him or her because we are not a people without hope. Point is this, free counseling advice. Don't diminish their pain. Don't pretend like death doesn't hurt. Love them well by hugging them tight and together looking forward to the hope of the resurrection. And in this, we bear one another's burdens. See, the point is that death cannot squelch the hope of a believer. Indeed, we have hope in our own resurrection because Jesus Christ was raised. Sickness, accidents, death do not actually have any power over my fate. Because when I die, unless Jesus comes back first, I die with confident hope. Do not fear the one who can hurt the body. Fear him who can destroy the soul. And for those of you who are here today and you're exploring all this, you're curious about it, we welcome you. And we're glad to see that you're here and we want you to know that this is the essence of the story. Jesus died on a cross so that you could be forgiven of your sins. Jesus came back from the grave so that you could live forever. And Jesus sends you his Holy Spirit so you have the power to follow him as king because you don't in your own ability. And these are the essential points to the good news of salvation. And we would love to show you more if you are curious. And so you can come chat with me. You can chat with Breton, who, the other elder who was up here. We can chat with the person who's sitting next to you who invited you. But we would love to walk with you on this journey so that you can discover the truth that Jesus says about himself.